very long time. What is your verdict? Find the defendant guilty. The deadly narcotic. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've got to get a hold of yourself. You're listening to Law Talking, an independent podcast brought to you by Greenway Chambers. In this episode, Frank Hicks and Lucas Shipway look at recent events, including climate change litigation brought in the federal court in respect of government bonds and superannuation. Ingmar Taylor, Jamie Darrams and Lucy Saunders consider employment in these current difficult times, particularly the power of employers to stand down employees due to the COVID-19 shutdowns. In the final segment, Julie Wright talks to Ian Roberts about undertaking the challenge of the 2019 Port Macquarie Ironman. Hello and welcome to Greenway Chambers Law Talking Podcast. I'm joined by Lucas Shipway in this first segment of the program. Hello, Lucas, how are you? I'm well, Frank, how are you? I'm very well, I'm very well. Well, in recent events, uh, obviously the most immediate thing that's occurred is that Brett Walker's delivered his report into the Ruby Princess debacle. Uh, it obviously made a number of conclusions as to errors that occurred along the way. Did you have any particular thoughts on that, Lucas, or just another government stuff up? Well, as one would expect, a very well-expressed and well-reasoned report following what seems to have been a very thorough investigation, the Australian carried the headline that Gladys Berejiklian was sorry there was no one to blame, which was obviously a bit of a dig, but I have no doubt that the findings reflect what was the evidence that was was put before the inquiry. You'd have to assume that things have gone wrong, but it seems that according to Mr Walker, there were no systemic failures, which I suppose is reassuring. It certainly is, and it certainly seemed to be a unique set of circumstances, which led to, uh, unfortunately, some very significant and serious consequences for a number of individuals. Speaking of significant and serious consequences for individuals, we've obviously had the hot mess of the Banksia class litigation, class action litigation, I should say, down in Melbourne, and the consequences for O'Brien QC, who seems to have admitted to overcharging and accepting of his fate in terms of repaying monies that he was paid, and also being removed from the role of legal practitioners. Very serious consequences indeed, and a salutary lesson to us all, I would say, Lucas. Absolutely. I don't know very much about the facts of that matter, but I think as a general matter, we're all very conscious of the importance of, well, the significance, I suppose, of costs for participants in legal proceedings. And yes, this seems to be a salutary lesson that care needs to be taken, uh, unsurprisingly, in, um, in making sure that the charges that are levied are appropriate. Indeed. And of course, I'm not suggesting that anyone would be doing anything to the extent that perhaps was suggested on the part of Mr O'Brien QC, but uh, I think we all should be aware of some litigation to all parties. We're looking at not only estimating fees, but what we're actually charging. Another thing that occurred, obviously, in the last month or so is that the Commonwealth pulled out of the Palmer litigation against Western Australia in respect of the closure of borders. As I understand it, the West Australian government now wants the matter to be reheard without the benefit of the Commonwealth's evidence because it considered it was uh, rather on a good thing when faced only with the case brought by Clive Palmer. But it'll be interesting to see whether or not a rehearing does in fact occur. Indeed, and uh, it's those sort of issues in relation to movement across borders is obviously 
one of the reasons why we have constitution. And so it's interesting to see that the Commonwealth, for political reasons, it seems here, has decided to bow out of this particular constitutional stoush. And as you say, there's an interesting procedural question about what the court does next, uh, having the, the Commonwealth having made that decision. Uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, development, however way it goes. Now, last year in New York, the Supreme Court dismissed a case brought by the Attorney General against ExxonMobil in respect of allegations of securities fraud arising in the context of climate change. In the decision, Justice Ostriger held that the company's public disclosures concerning how it had accounted for past, present and future climate risks did not violate the relevant laws. Now, this obviously uh, suggests that there is going to be further climate litigation. And I know that there's been a major decision in the Netherlands holding the Netherlands government to account and requiring it to protect against those risks. But, Lucas, here in Australia, you've seen a few cases that have uh, been brought in the same context. I have, Frank. I think it's an interesting trend and I have every reason to think it will continue. Shareholder or investor-driven litigation with what you might call a policy or political objective has been around for a little while and particularly in the United States and I think we're starting to see it more and more in Australia. Uh, It travels alongside I suppose the class action litigation which is also burgeoning in Australia. There's been a couple of recent cases that are worth mentioning I think in that respect. Kathleen O'Donnell, who's a 23-year-old student, recently commenced proceedings against the Commonwealth of Australia and others in the federal court. And those proceedings are about climate change. The allegations in the proceeding are that the Commonwealth, when it issues its securities for purchase by investors, is obliged to provide an information statement under the Corporations Act, and those information statements are then published on the internet, and the idea is that investors uh, have regard to that information when they make decisions about whether or not to invest in those products. The allegation is that those products are, or the value of them is, affected by matters arising from climate change. So there's questions about the way in which the Commonwealth government responds in the policies that it makes to the threat of climate change and the allegation is that the information that was published by the government did not take proper account of those matters. The allegation in a nutshell is that the Commonwealth breached its duty as a promoter by disclosing in the information documents that it published some of the material risks that affected the value of those products but failed to disclose any information about Australia's climate change risks. And that's then relied upon to make an allegation about a breach of various statutory provisions, including in the Corporations Act and the ASIC Act. So it's an interesting um, move. It's a concise statement which parties are required to file is available on the website of the Solicitor's Equity Generation Lawyers who are acting in the matter. That statement was settled by Ron Merkel QC and Thomas Wood uh, and it sets out some allegations which on their face at least seem to pose uh, a question at least for the Commonwealth to answer. So that'll be interesting to see how that ties out. It certainly seems to be uh, very topical. I mean, obviously when we were living through the 
hellish bushfires earlier this year, the issue of climate change and the response of the government and its consideration and action in that regard was very much front and centre. Obviously, since the global pandemic, those matters have somewhat deprioritised, if I can put put it that way, but they're certainly not going away. Uh, And that certainly seems to be a very interesting piece of litigation. As I understand it, there's also a similar case, or at least a case, uh, in respect of climate change also that's been brought by Mark McVeigh against his uh, superannuation fund, Retail Employee Superannuation Trust. Apparently that's listed for hearing in November. And the allegation made in that contest is that the super fund has failed to act in the best interests of Mr McVeigh by failing to consider about climate risks when investing his money. Now, obviously, superannuation returns are projected over many years, decades in many cases for younger workers. And obviously, the fact of climate change and its evolving and quickly coming threats will be significant in the context of those sorts of investment decisions and how they're being made. So that's another interesting set of cases that uh, are going to be brought in this space. I might just add that uh, both of these cases were addressed in some detail in the first August 2020 edition of the Saturday paper in an excellent article by Kieran Pender. So in addition to looking at the website for the case description, I'd also recommend looking at Mr Pender's article. It was very good indeed. Lucas, well, thank you for those observations. Is there anything else that's caught your eye or do you think we can just about wrap it up there? Uh, Look, I think that's probably uh, enough for this week. There's uh, some very interesting events happening. And as you say, the pandemic uh, unfortunately continues to rage, perhaps uh, more in other parts of the world than fortunately in Australia, although Victoria has obviously had a recent bump in that road. And we saw in the press the deal that was trumpeted by the Commonwealth Government in respect of vaccines, the attention was then focused on whether the deal was in fact worth the paper that it's written on to use a phrase. And I think it remains to be seen whether what has been promised delivers, but in any event, it it certainly uh, is a step in the right direction. Well, I agree it's a step in the right direction. I think what was called a deal was in fact something like a letter of intent. And uh, as lawyers, We all know the worth of those. Lucas, thank you very much for joining in in this segment. And I think we should revisit that uh, climate litigation uh, once a case or two has been determined and uh, we'll see where it's all landed. So thank you very much again. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I'm Ingmar Taylor. I'm here with Jamie Darrams and Lucy Saunders. We're just going to talk about the capacity of employers to not pay their employees where they can't be usefully employed. COVID-19 has created situations for employers where they either have to shut their business or partially close it. And so the issue arises, can they simply turn to their current employees and say, I'm sorry, I can't usefully employ you at the moment, so you'll have to go home and I won't be paying you until we reopen. Lucy, what's the Fair Work Act tell us about this issue? At a very general level, Section 524 of the Fair Work Act allows employers to stand down their employees in very particular circumstances. Described in that section as a stand down, probably better understood as providing a right to deduct deduct pay without otherwise contravening the terms of the Act. There are two requirements and they're better understood in reverse order. 
Uh, the first is whether the employee can be usefully employed, which is often described as whether there is useful work for them to do. And the second, relevantly at least for COVID-19, is whether there has been a stoppage for which the employer cannot be held reasonably responsible. Uh, before looking at the two sections, the, it is important to remember that conventionally a direct causal connection between the two is required. The fact of a stoppage or the fact of a lack of useful work is in itself enough. enough. They must be directly linked. Looking at stoppage, and this is probably the more complex area, certainly it's the area that's been explored less in decisions on this clause and predecessor award clauses. It's not only that there is a stoppage of some kind, but that the stoppage has been caused by something outside of the employer's direct control. And again, although a limited amount of authority on the point, that is likely to require a direct causal link. Complicated with COVID-19, where you have situations where nobody is responsible for the pandemic, but arguably an employer is responsible for economic responses it takes to downturns in trade caused by that pandemic. So the difference would be between a shop that has been ordered by the government to close, it cannot perform its usual commercial activities. Like as a opposed gym, to, yeah. for example, yeah, or have the, to close, or no the choice, or the theatre. Yeah. yeah, Or a shop that is perfectly permitted to remain open, it sells non-essential items but hasn't been stopped by the government but because there is no foot traffic around, it is not economic for it to run and thus decides to reduce its operations. And is that a stoppage? It's a stoppage, but it's one that's within the employer's control. And, and so the key it doesn't trigger the capacity to stand down? Properly not. Yeah. And if that, if that were so, you can see how it would have flow-on effects. It's a surprising conclusion for some in the current context where the downturn in trade was, at least in previous months, shockingly large. But what about winter seasons where there's just a, a slowdown due to normal economic demand. If that causal link wasn't there, if it was just embracing economic response, it undermines the concept of permanent employment. And what, when, you, when it comes to stoppage, Jamie and I were talking about this earlier, and I was expressing a view, it doesn't have to be a stoppage of the entire business. And I was giving an example which emerged in our area of lawyers that law firms found early on that they could continue to operate the law firm, but they shut down their catering section because people weren't coming to law firms anymore, so there was no need to make lunches and coffees and so forth. And so there was a stoppage of part of the work of the firm. Now, to me, that's a stoppage, but is that debatable, do you think? I think that example's very debatable. But um, <laughs> it, On <laughs> the basis that the catering employees have no useful sure. work to do because sure, sure, they're there as a chef and no one wants to eat their food. But this is the difficulty with the approach that's been taken. The, the focus there is on useful work where the question of stoppage has to be looked at separately. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it even needs to be necessarily a stoppage of that business's work at all. Um, we see that in some of the, at least some of the earlier authorities, they're dealing with the question of strike, but the strike that causes the lack of useful work, and it's an equivalent to a stoppage, it's the work is not being done for whatever reason. That strike is happening in other enterprises, which then in turn means that there's no supply of materials or labour at the particular factory, which then leads to the lack of useful work. But it doesn't have to be, even on those earlier cases, a stoppage of the entire work. No. The, the carpenter's case, there was just no work for the carpenters, didn't mean that there was no building work That's so, going on. But the, the, the lack of work for the carpenters was driven by, again, that external stoppage. Yeah. It was a secondary boycott question, which was permissible at the time. Now, one case, Jamie, that talks about this is, is the Coral Princess case, which sort of seems almost ironic that it's a cruise company, <laughs> given all the COVID-19 
uh, events that have occurred as a result of cruise companies. But um, tell us about that. Yeah, well, one of the questions that immediately arises is how do you deal with these matters and the rights of the employees and the employees and the circumstances? And the Coral Princess case was a matter that came before the Commission pursuant to Section 526 of the Fair Work Act, which gives the Commission power to deal with disputes over these stand-down provisions in Section 524. As the name suggests, it's a cruise line and the employee, the applicant in the case, Mr Marsden, was employed as its marine superintendent. And the cruise line found itself in a situation as a consequence of the government regulations that it had to stop undertaking its cruises. And as a consequence of that, it stood down Mr Marsden Amongst um, others, I think. A, a number of others. I think it was yeah. about 107 other yeah. employees. And the interesting thing in that case was that there was still some work that Mr Marsden was doing that could be done. Because his role as Marine Superintendent was the one that didn't stop and start with a cruise. It was a lot of maintenance of vessels. Vessels needed to continue to be maintained and he was he had a management role in that yeah. respect. So he, he said, well... I can still be usefully employed. My work hasn't stopped. Exactly. I think they describe his role as one being overseeing other aspects of the business. And so he was able to point to certain things that he could have done and was doing before, but they were actually being undertaken by other employees as a consequence of the changes that the employer put in place. And so, Lucy, I was interested to understand how this concept of usefully employed has been considered or considered by, in this case, the Deputy President, given the fact that there was continuing work functions that Mr Marsden was doing before that were being done by others. Yes. There are some difficulties with the decision, which um, it should be said was dealt with on an urgent basis and was the first really contemporary decision on the point. Um, The way that Deputy President Lake has approached useful work in the decision, very much a focus on Mr Marsden's usual work is what he was actually engaged to perform. That's not necessarily the question. It's a question of whether there is work available that is within the scope of the employee's contract effectively, work they could be directed to do ordinarily, that has provides some benefit, economic or otherwise, to the employer's business. That wasn't explored in this decision. It may be that the question simply doesn't arise in the context of a cruise ship because there's not these alternative duties floating around but it's something of a broader question than the approach that was taken there. Uh, The difficulty I do have with the Coral Princess decision is the way the Deputy President has applied the Carpenters case, which deals with the where there is work for some employees but not others, so where you run out of work and part of a cohort of employees can be stood down. You have enough work for five Carpenters but not all 20, so can you stand down the other 15? Generally speaking, the answer to that is yes, but it's limited. It's limited to a cohort of of identical employees. Those comments in the Carpenters case are dealing with, as you're saying, 20 Carpenters, they all did the same work. That's not what's happened here. Mr Marston's normal work was not only available, but it had been reallocated to others. That is probably not permissible. So she took the view, and in fairness to her, she's mandated to apply the concept of fairness in determining the dispute. But she took the view that it was reasonable for the cruise line to say there's only enough work for a small uh, number of people and his work could be reallocated in a way that it wasn't unreasonable and determined, in effect, that 
it was fair for him to be stood down without pay. I guess what you're seeing here with some of these decisions as well is I think what I like to describe it as this sort of pragmatism or pragmatic approach, and you see this in the Deputy President's findings coming out about looking at the conduct of the employer and if the employer seems to be acting in good faith, that is a relevant consideration in determining whether they've uh, faithfully applied the sections of the Act. Good faith and reasonableness seem to really come through her decision, don't they? That's always been, that approach has always been taken, which is perhaps not surprising in such a fundamentally industrial area that we're perhaps neglecting the strict legal requirement to what feels right. But And the question of proof, because it's quite a difficult evidentiary proposition whether useful work exists even in a factory environment. It has always been the case, and I think it's metropolitan tramways that deals with this most expressly, that where an employer has, it appears, made good faith efforts to find useful work and do the appropriate assessments and calculations and has thought about why certain tasks aren't useful, um, then that is conventionally taken into account. I mean, one of the other things that sort of struck me related to that um, position was that this is the first time, I think, in our living memory in any event that such a wholesale application of these provisions is needed or has been needed to be considered. So there's little doubt that the consequences are unexpected um, far-reaching across all industries. And this is, again, this pragmatism point coming back in this particular decision that no-one seems to have disputed the consequences of the government stepping in and implementing the regulations that had obviously a significant effect for this business. I mean, I think the finding was the business stopped trading altogether. Is there likely to be any relevance to any other sort of cases that are floating around out there, Lucy, that you're aware of, where this application of this case here and the provision of this are going to have relevance? Um, I don't know if this particular decision is going to have far-reaching effects, but certainly it's not the only stand-down dispute on foot. I'll talk about some specific ones in a minute. But the thing to observe is that there's always a, a bit of a booby prize for employees who do contest these kind of decisions. If Often, if it's being applied correctly, these are actions of last resort. You have an employer who is standing you down because, as in the Coral Princess case, there has been a significant economic hit to their business. It's the same with the retail store thing Mara and I were discussing earlier. The reality is that nobody is hanging around Pitt Street Mall at the moment. It's the alternative can be that permanent employment is no longer able to be sustained, that the employees needs to be made redundant, which means that these factors do come into play. Let me um, just turn before we finish in the last minute or two we have to the other case we we're going to talk about, the decision of Justice Flick involving Qantas's decision to stand down. Now, that case didn't involve any dispute as to the right of Qantas to stand down, but employees who at the time of the stand down were on sick leave, uh, to use the, the more common expression of, of the personal leave provisions under the Act, uh, stopped getting paid. So these were people who were uh, not able to work because they were suffering from cancer or just had a major heart surgery. And Justice Flick determined that they were entitled to be stood down as well. Now, what was the thinking there? Um, fundamentally, the decision turned on... Section 99 of the Act, which where an employee takes paid sick leave, they are entitled to be paid for the ordinary hours that they would have worked in that period. 
words to that effect. Um, the decision effectively turns on the idea that because they would have been validly stood down as conceded, they wouldn't have been paid anything and so the sick leave provisions don't run. These disputes came up under enterprise agreements, but I understand the provisions are relatively identical. That relates back to what's, well, what's at least now generally accepted as the fundamental purpose of personal leave, which is insurance. The idea is that it safeguards you from loss of income for falling ill. If you've lost in, not lost income because you weren't going to get any anyway, it follows that that purpose hasn't been frustrated. It seems that there is one difficulty with it. Section 525B effectively prevents an employer from standing down an employee where they are authorised to be on leave. You do wonder whether an employer could refuse an application for sick leave supported by the necessary evidentiary requirements such that they could withhold authorisation, but I don't think it's an issue that was explored carefully in that case. Yeah, I, and, and I have the same question as to whether that provision, which says you can't stand down someone on authorised leave, means you can't stand down someone who's already on personal leave, but Justice Flick considered otherwise, albeit in a decision which he stated at the end, he wasn't able to set out as much reasoning as he would have liked given the urgency of the decision. It may well be on appeal. Uh, I've heard something to the effect that the unions are, were certainly considering appealing the decision, so more might be seen there. It may be that it wasn't run or that it wasn't considered because of the way 525 is cast, which is not strictly a prohibition. What it says is an employee is not taken to be stood down, which on one reading could relate more to continuity of service terms, but I think it does operate to mean that they're not taken to be stood down for all purposes of the Act such that a failure to pay them the wages they'd be entitled to under an enterprise agreement is a contravention. I mean, Justice Flick looked at that in in some respects and he, where he determined the object and purpose of the stand-down provision was effectively twofold. One was to preserve as much as possible the employment relationship and the other alternative purpose was to provide some financial relief to the employers in those circumstances. So that would suggest that maybe that's why the argument was right in that respect. That, that's true and that is historically one of the purposes of stand-down provisions but its counterpoint is that it is still related to the concept of ongoing permanent really weekly employment. And the summary of the history in that decision was necessarily at a high level because it wasn't a particular feature of either side's argument. Um, so there is some caution there because at some point the job is redundant. The problem with saying it's about protecting employment and you know the booby prize arises afterwards is that you do it every time and the alternative protections that have been developed and are in the Act for situations where there are redundancies are never exercised and you have employees who have lost all certainty of work. Well, on that cheerful note, let's wrap up and uh, uh, thank you all for listening. Gotta go, gotta see things, see new places and brand new things. Gotta go places and do things. Maybe to forget. Hello, Julie. Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm very, very well, thank you. We're going to talk today about something that Julie embarked on a little while ago: the Ironman race up in. Port Macquarie, and just to give you an idea of what an Ironman race is all about, you start off with a 3.8 kilometre open ocean swim, then you get out of the water and you jump on a bike and you ride for 180 kilometres, and then you jump off your bike and you run a marathon. Pretty standard day. So Julie, you competed in the Port Macquarie Ironman. When did you do that? 
That was in May 2019, so just over a year ago. And that was after quite a lot of training to get there. So I consider that Ireland is my midlife crisis. Can't afford a sports car, don't like tattoos. So my options for midlife crisis were a bit limited. And so I thought uh, a sporting activity would be a good one. And um, I sort of woke up on my 45th birthday, which unfortunately was uh, three and a bit years ago, and decided that I would do an Ironman, sort of apropos of not really very much, and worked towards that goal, which was uh, in May last year. Well, tattoo would have been less painful. It would have been in the long run, yes. In fact, probably should have just gone with that next time. Next time I'll do that, yeah. And after a year, do you think the pain has subsided so you, you can't remember how bad it was and you're happy to do it again? Well, sort of a bit like the theory of childbirth, you know, you forget how bad it was so you're going for another one. Uh, uh, no, no, I won't be doing another Ironman. <laughs> Not because of the pain. It was absolutely fantastic. It was, a you know, a great achievement. I'm really, really delighted that I did it. I wouldn't do another one just because I think it would be really hard to hit that first time high again and also because the training and the planning and the preparation is it is very time consuming and um, it was a lot to put myself through and put my family through and I think what I'll do going forward is continue to do half irons man which is not quite so bad. Yeah and you tend to recover a bit more quickly. I mean I found that the, the training takes a lot of time but we both have jobs that involve a lot of after hours work and long hours of preparing cases, running cases and so on. How did you find coordinating the training and the family life? You had young children at the time, still have, and your work commitments. Yeah, that, that was a challenge. I mean, luckily I had a lot of family support, which was great. My uh, husband was right behind my midlife crisis. I think he was happy that it wasn't a tattoo. He picked up a lot of the parenting duty in that time, which was great. But also I did... Uh, a lot of my bike training on a bike trainer, which uh, I know you do too, called a Wahoo Kicker. And that is just allows me to sit for a long time and bike indoors without going anywhere. And I got myself a big table that goes over my bike and use that as a work platform. So when I did long training rides, and some of them were up to seven hours in the, you know, the really tough bit of training before the Ironman, I sat and read evidence or, you know, marked up documents or whatever I could do, which was pretty useful. So that was a good way of combining my time and making the most of it and and still working. So there's been a, a lot of evidence read sitting on a bike, and that worked quite well. And otherwise, the thing that gives way is sleep, you know, and uh, it's, the, it's the same with doing a, a big trial, you know, it, that we do in our job sometimes. Yeah, it's between midnight and four in the morning are always available. So uh, I did some training late at night, some early in the morning, and uh, generally just squeezed it around everything else. I did Ironman back in 2010, and they hadn't invented those smart trainers, mm. I think, at that stage. And I did one or two sessions on the trainers, but it's just so hideously boring. I couldn't do it. So boring. Yeah. Um, and but at least now you, with a screen that shows you the terrain you're riding through and it's almost like a live ride but in a cartoon version. Yeah, and that's that's good. It is, and that, that's good too, and that's quite motivating. And, um, you know, I think like a lot of people in our profession, I've got a little bit of uh, competitiveness about me, so riding against yeah. other people, even virtually, is good. It makes you just go that bit faster. I think the also the family support is critical. I didn't tell my family till the week before the race, so <laughs> I was scared I'd be it would be rejected. But uh, having having them support you at a time when you're stressed out at work and trying to fit in probably too much training 
and focusing on a race that is probably something you've bitten off that was bigger than you could chew, which would be in my case it was. Yes, I found that having a lot of support is is absolutely vital, not only in my case for my husband picking up parenting duties while I was training, but also, you know, physically and practically on the day, being there with you, cheering you on. Um, my husband was my bike mechanic, my chauffeur, my chef, everything, and met me at a whole stack of different places on the race. And, and it's really nice to see a familiar face when you are sort of 10 hours or something into a, a pretty long day and feeling really tired and feeling really unmotivated. So, um, yeah, it's it's really important to have good support. He was probably wondering why you didn't take the sports car option. Yeah, I think he'd have even probably gone for the tattoo at that point. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, and it's um, the, the, it was a very long day and uh, my husband was there throughout and that was really good. And, um, yes, you know, I did promise him it was the only Ironman I'm doing, which I think he's pretty happy about. But um, he was he was great, and my kids were great. And I had a photo of my kids stuck on my bike, so that when I started the second lap of the uh, the two ninety kilometer laps, um, that was uh, quite uh, useful as well because I was feeling pretty tired at that point. Yeah, it's hard that turnaround going back, knowing that you've got those hills to tackle again. It is hard, and I think you know probably the whole endurance thing is. It's a bit like having a trial, you know, in our business where it takes a long time. There's a lot of bumps and tribulations along the way and the outcome is far from certain. That's one of the things I was going to ask you. Those types of endurance events, I think, are good for the sort of building a mental fitness that you need for work like work we do, where you've got long days and court, long nights preparing, uh, long trials, and having to concentrate for extended periods of time and managing the in the race, the emotional ups and downs and all, all that goes with the, the pain and suffering during the event. Yeah, very much so. I mean, there's quite a lot of things that, are, you know, lend itself to being sort of good training for our job. You've obviously got to put a lot of time in and it, there's no substitute for that. It's the same with preparing for a trial or something. You can't just not do it. You know, it, it doesn't do itself. You've got to put the time in. It, it is a real challenge and it's a real mental game and there are times when you feel you know, almost like you just can't do it and you, you're not going to get there. I think the second leg of the bike lap was that for me. And also when I got off my bike to start the marathon, I thought, oh, the bike leg's over. Oh, no, I've got to run a marathon. <laughs> not, not exactly a surprise. I knew it was coming, but it was still something that I, I wasn't particularly pleased about when I um, got there. And that's, uh, that's really good training for our job, which is tough and quite often – as with an event like Ironman, there's lots of people around you and there's people who support you, but you're in the spotlight on your own, you know, and there's, so, there's a lot of things that you have to do by yourself and you have to put the time in and no one else is going to do that for you. So it's a, a good lesson in endurance, a good lesson in preparation and a good lesson in, you know, just getting on and keep doing it because eventually you will get to the end. Yeah. I remember when you're talking about getting off the bike and having to do the run. In the swim, I couldn't wait to get on the bike. On, on the bike, I couldn't wait to get on the run. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't get to get on the beer. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> Whatever you were doing was, was awful and you were just wanting the next bit to come off. Absolutely. That last, that last turnaround in the run when everyone's cheering and you're running back to the, the, the finish line after a, a huge day, it's an incredible feeling. 
Oh, amazing. Uh, it's it's difficult to explain because um, it, it's such a sort of once-in-a-lifetime thing, or for me anyway. And I knew that the run was a four-lap race around Port Macquarie. And when I sort of got to the third lap, I knew I was going to get there. If I wasn't sure before then, I was sure by that time. And it was just a matter of, you know, still keep going one foot in front of the other. And when I came down to the last lap, I was so delighted. It was dark. It was cold. Lots of people had already finished. And um, I was in my, uh, you know, 14th hour, 15th hour of working out and I was just ecstatic and the final run into the finish line is amazing particularly when somebody booms out that you are an Ironman and um, as I got over the line there's all these lovely helpers there ready to take you into the sort of recovery tent and my first question of course was oh, where's the ice cream because uh, <laughs> uh, I knew there was some and uh, I was pretty ready for that by then so yeah it was an amazing feeling and uh, I would highly recommend it to anyone it's just such an achievement. Yeah, it's, it, it's a lot of work to get a, a cheap towel. But, uh, <laughs> it is. Uh, and a T-shirt. It is, it's an amazing feeling. Yeah. Okay, so what's next? What's next? Well, um, consistent with my promise to my husband and to myself that I won't be doing another one, I, I, I will stick with just the one full Ironman. But I do love the event and... Um, a half Ironman obviously is still uh, a big thing to do. It's about six six hours for me. So I have um, had one booked in this year, but for COVID, they've all been canned and bumped to 2021. So my next one is again in Port Macquarie, the half Ironman in May next year. And in the meantime, I'm, I, I still train pretty much six days a week and see people like you on Strava all the time. And I really enjoy that because for the same reasons, you know, not only keeps you mentally fit, but, you know, it's a good way to blow out the cobwebs when otherwise our job can be quite sedentary and involve a lot of sitting. So I, I will keep up with Ironman. I think it's it's a great uh, event and allows me to continue to eat more ice cream. So pretty good all <laughs> round. <laughs> well, you've inspired me. I might come up and do the half with you next time. Yeah, do it. Game on. Right. Uh, well, thanks for joining us, Julie, and all the best for your events in the future. And the rest of you, hopefully, will hear from you or see you on the next occasion. So, till then, bye for now. Bye bye. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Law Talking. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and are not representative of Greenway Chambers. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. You can also listen to Law Talking on Spotify, Google Podcasts or our website. Be sure to visit greenway.com.au to access the show notes and for more information on today's speakers.